Hello and welcome to the Voice of Reason podcast. I'm your host, Benjamin Boyce, and today's guest is Catherine Deves, who is an advocate for women out there in Victoria, Australia, and she recently finished her law degree and is awaiting admittance into the ranks of the solicitors, which is like an esquire out there in Australia, specifically in Victoria, Australia. And in Victoria, there's some legislation coming down the pipes that is about to be implemented that is about conversion therapy and saving people from being converted from their identity into another identity. Historically, conversion therapy was practiced on homosexuals to pray the gay away or to turn them straight. But now with the introduction of gender identity into the mix, it really changes the playing field. Furthermore, this particular legislation extends to the government some very questionable powers. And Catherine wanted to come on and explain this bill and raise awareness about what is being smuggled into law, particularly in Victoria, but also in other areas of the West. This particular episode shows to me that gender ideology can be used not only for the introduction of pronoun ambiguity and the switching of how we perceive one another within gender roles and stereotypes, but because there's something in it that is so insidious that plays around with our language's connection to reality, it actually does manifest in the ways that people can control reality or how we perceive reality or how we are supposed to perceive reality once this is implemented into law. So without further ado, here is Catherine D. Eves. So you had that right. Yeah. And uh, is that an ancient name? Is that the name of your clan reaching, reaching back for ages? It goes back to France, apparently, um, something to do with uh, the arches on the top of the ramparts, I believe. But the, the, we've been able to trace it back to the Widow Deves in the 1500s in uh, Great Britain. So, Oh, wow. Yeah. <laughs> okay. And when did you guys migrate yeah. to uh, the Southern Isle or continent, uh, I, I guess, can... technically? Uh, I go all the way back to the first fleet and second fleet. So uh, there was a male convict on the first fleet, a female convict on the second fleet, and they married and had a daughter who married a shipwright and became respectable. So um, in terms of being Australian for a European dis person of European descent, I'm as Australian as you can be. Yes. Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah. That's, uh, is that a heavy load? You're like uh, among like a, a long lineage of Australians. Well, it's a little different to how it is in the United States where you can trace your lineage back to the Mayfair and that's very celebrated. Um, here we quite enjoy our convict notoriety, I think, but it's not quite <laughs> it's not quite as acknowledged, um, hmm. you know, if, if you can say, oh, I trace my lineage all the way back there. Um, but, yeah, you know, I, I'm pretty proud of my heritage, I think. Um, I like the fact that my people have been here since Colonials first set up shop on the island, yes. And what yeah. do you what do you what are you specializing in right now or occupying yourself with? So where I come in, um, so I've just finished a law degree. Um, I've been studying for the last six years. I have three small children. Um, I also work part time in a law firm. 
Um, so my interest became peaked in the area of uh, women's rights and gender identity back in about 2015. Um, and then further to that, so I've sort of been active in the debate online for a number of years. And a few years ago, I decided to stop just complaining online and try and figure out how I can actually make a difference uh, in real life. Um, so I became more active in the online groups. And then back in October of this year, uh, the sports guidelines came out. Um, and that's when we realised that there, there's not a very organised effort um, in Australia against gender identity ideology. We're a few years behind, say, the UK, um, mm -hmm. and I realised there was a, a real need for a voice in the space to be pushing back against the sports guidelines for transgender inclusion. So I joined forces with um, the New Zealand women who already had Save Women's Sports in New Zealand and we rebranded as Save Women's Sports Australasia because we have a lot um, in common. So that's that's where I come into the into the piece. Mm -hmm. And uh, could you could we kind of define gender ideology? <coughs> Pardon me. As you. Uh, say what it is and how that interacts with law right so uh obviously having my legal training um it's of great interest to me so when i became aware that all this sex self-id stuff was happening uh say in the uk in particular the women uh, were much more organized and very vocal i thought i'm going to go and have a look and see what's happened here and to my great surprise <coughs> um I realised that <coughs> law that effectively enabled sex self-ID had already been enacted in Australia back in 2013. Okay. Um, yeah. So. In, in what way, way? So what's happened is we have this fantastic piece of legislation called the Sex Discrimination Act, uh, which was put into place in 1984 by the federal government. And that was to... Um, that was in relation to our treaty obligations for the United Nations Convention for the Elimination of Discrimination, of all forms of discrimination against women. So that treaty was put into the legislation verbatim. Um, now, that was obviously for the purpose of ending discrimination against women, um, but, you know, fast-forwarding to this decade. So now it's, it's sort of been used by males as well uh, to argue that they've been discriminated against on the basis of their sex. Um, but what happened with this legislation in 2013 was they inserted uh, gender identity as a protected characteristic. So, yeah, that was did, done. Um, go did ahead. Did they define gender identity in the legislation? Uh, <laughs> they put a definition in. Um uh, whether whether it's definable or not, but they lifted it out of the Yogyakarta principles. So okay. um, they basically, what it means is, uh, here it is, the gender-related identity, appearance or mannerisms or other gender-related characteristics of a person, whether by way of medical intervention or not, with or without regard to the person's designated sex at birth. So try and figure out what that means. I guess um, just stereotypes, mean, right? <laughs> Stereotypes, which is interesting because in CEDAW, there's an article that says that women are not to be discriminated against on the basis of stereotypes. Okay. So yeah. 
they've inserted gender identity into the legislation and that was done um, without broad community consultation, without media scrutiny, uh, the the usual tactics, and that was that was able to be slotted in because our government had tried to put a, a very large bill through two years before called the Anti Discrimination Act. Um, it was very unwieldy and it didn't survive, um, didn't get passed. So one of the components of that was gender identity. So what they did was they just plucked that little bit out and just quietly slotted it into Sex Discrimination Act. Okay. Then further to that, that our Attorney General then put out guidelines uh, for all the departments as to how that was to be incorporated into policy and guidelines. And (laughs) it's a dog's breakfast of uh, a document. So it says Hmm. that gender identity and sex can be conflated um, and it it really just adds to the confusion. Um, So that's pretty much where our problems in Australia started in relation to gender identity. Yeah, and so... Could you bring us through how that translated into other domains? I guess sports uh, is the one that you are dealing with now. That's one aspect of how it's been that one uh, recognition act or that act, that gender act manifests how. Okay, so... um... We also have a provision in the Sex Discrimination Act, Section 42, that says that you can discriminate on the basis of uh, sex and gender identity or or intersex uh, if strength, stamina and physique are relevant. So, yes, (laughs) so arguably you could say for every single sport except maybe equestrian, those factors are relevant. However, um, two years ago in June 2019, Uh, Sports Australia and the Australian Human Rights Commission released a transgender guidelines, uh, sorry, guidelines for the inclusion of trans and gender diverse people in sports. Now, what they did was they assessed the, uh, the legislation purely from the perspective of gender identity. So they didn't take into account the sex discrimination, the sex as a protected characteristic. They did not consider Section 42. They just put forward the fact, uh, they put forward the interpretation that you have to include people in whatever category they want to be included in on the basis of their gender identity. Um, They also extended this to people are allowed to access the toilets, change rooms and overnight accommodation of their choice that aligns with their gender identity. So clearly there's some significant safeguarding issues that arise there. And is this across the board or only affecting government programs, government buildings? Can private Uh, companies discriminate based on sex? Can you have a women's club or a men's club that is based on male and female? Well, this is where the inherent conflict arises because in the Sex Discrimination Act, there is provision for, say, same-sex education. Um, There's also provision for same-sex clubs. But then you have in conflict with it that you cannot discriminate on the basis of gender identity. So we have a collision of rights and we haven't had a test case yet to, uh, to test that conflict. Mm. Um, but what's happened similarly like in the UK, is that the position favouring gender identity has been promulgated by uh, the institutions, which has been driven by the activists. So mm-hmm. um, we're getting, say, sports policies 
like this that really don't take into account sex as a protected characteristic. Um, so we've had Senator Claire Chandler from Tasmania who's been asking some hard questions. Um, so she's been, uh, she's pulled the CEO of Sports Australia, uh, the Sex Discrimination Commissioner into Senate committee to ask them what the process was for making these decisions. Um, and I, very unusually, they refused to disclose who they consulted with. Oh, they okay. said that, yeah, they said that they consulted with over 100 groups, their broad community consultation, but they would only admit to the fact that they consulted one women's group and they won't tell us which women's group. So we don't know if this is a group that's already enthralled to the ideology or a group that actually um, believes in our sex-based rights. In Canada, there was a Bill C-6, which had to do with a gender uh, non-discrimination act. And the government promised that they would, in, with every bill, they always promise that they will publish the data of how these different bills are uh, affecting the community. And the government has so far suppressed or denied access to the actual data on how this gender ideology is actually affecting uh, women, men, all these categories, and even the ways in which they can now collect data is uh, suspect or forfeit according to gender recognition. Um, so it, I'm not saying that there's anything similar other than there's kind of this pattern of people not <laughs> wanting to really be totally transparent. And your government, I suppose, is trying to be as transparent as possible in every other domain, perhaps? Yes. Uh, as you pointed out, there seems to be this extraordinary cloak of secrecy over anything that's done in relation to uh, the interests of, of gender ideology. Um, similarly, in Canada, you know, we, we have these guidelines that are presented as fait accompli and, and there's been no media scrutiny. And over here in Australia, particularly, we've really been up against the fact that the mainstream media, um, including the uh, the government media, I think similarly in Canada with CBC, we have the ABC, uh, we also mm. have SBS, they just refuse to critique the ideology. Um, mm. And we're starting to get a tiny bit of traction. We've had coverage in the Murdoch press. Um, Bernard Lane of the Australian newspaper has, has done an outstanding job on consistently covering uh, critiques. Um, we've also had Dr Holly Lawford-Smith. She appeared on uh, Sky News recently um, where she was interviewed about the Victorian conversion therapy legislation. Um, we, Holly and I recently got an article, I think it was just yesterday, into the Herald Sun, which is a big newspaper down in Victoria, uh, critiquing the conversion therapy legislation. So we are starting to get a little bit of coverage, but up mm -hmm. until now, a lot of it has just been very one way, which mm -hmm. I think probably in, in Canada and America and so on, you can, you can appreciate, um, it appears to be the Denton's strategy at work. <laughs> What's that? Oh, so the Denton's strategy, um, are you familiar with, uh, so there's Denton's law firm, which is the biggest law firm globally. And a couple of years ago, they put out uh, guidelines for, I think it's the International uh, Gay and Lesbian Youth Organization on how to uh, push their agenda. And in that, uh, in that, document that was released yeah they said that you need to uh, avoid media scrutiny 
um, tack your interests onto favourable um, changes in policy just quietly so it gets pushed through. I think they did it in Ireland with the Same-Sex Marriage Act. They slotted in self-ID at the 11th hour just quietly. Um, so it's this avoidance of media scrutiny and doing things behind closed doors and then presenting things as a fate accompli. So if there is criticism, it's already a done deal mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. and it, it's very hard to unwind. So that seems to be a recurring theme here in Australia. Um so I'm in the state of New South Wales and I thought I would go and have a little dig around and see what the policy was in relation to the Department of Education here. And some years ago, uh, right before Christmas, they released a document called Bulletin 55, um, mm, which was about... That doesn't sound ominous. <laughs> <laughs> um, so these are guidelines about transgender students in schools. And the way that it's been written is that the needs of the transgender student overrides the needs of all the other students. Mm. Um, the ch- in what the child dec- um, So their needs, it, basically there's a point where it says that their needs, needs need, have to take priority. So if you have other students expressing um uh, you know, they're not happy with, say, having a male in the girls' change room or dormitories. Um, they are to be referred to student services, so the child making the complaint. Um, uh, it, the way it's written is that the child's trans identity, uh, the other children don't get to have a say. This child would be presented if they have pronouns, whatever. The way it's written is all the other students are going to have to go along with it. But the most insidious part of that document is that if parents are refusing to affirm the child, then the school doesn't have to disclose to them that they are transitioning the child within the school. Um, And they are also encouraged to report the parents to child services if the Hmm. parents don't affirm. Um, So, again, we've got this undermining of parental uh, responsibility and family integrity, which also seems to be a recurring theme. Just to clarify, you said that uh, the school doesn't have to disclose to unwilling parents or non-affirming parents that the school is proceeding along transitioning that child. You're speaking strictly social transition, or are the schools enabling medical transition without the parents' consent or knowledge, to your knowledge? It's silent on that. Um, Hmm. So I I couldn't answer that. yeah, because it doesn't actually give that answer. But with the way things are going in Australia and the fact that you don't require uh, court uh, permission to transition a child and that the child, um, I think, can access medical care without the parent's knowledge or consent, um, and that can happen below the age of 18. So I'm not quite sure what age it is, 14 or 15. Conceivably, that could be a situation that could happen. Mm-hmm. So... Do you have concrete outcomes, negative outcomes of these bills? Have, have you guys been uh, collating them? And what are some examples of concrete negative outcomes that have happened in Australia due to the Gender Recognition Act or these different gender ideology acts? Um, so, for instance, we have the we have what we have with this with the sports guidelines. So we are getting reports now of women uh, self excluding from sports, um, from males being included in certain sports, um, women being injured. Um, we also oh. 
yes, women being injured um, by having to play against males in certain sports. Um, unfortunately, a lot of this still remains anonymous. Um, people are unwilling to come forward because they're afraid. Um, we have had a recent case where parents have lost custody of their child because they refused to put their female child on testosterone. So the state removed the child from the home. Um, okay. We also have just like the normalising of the transitioning of children. So we've had a senator here in New South Wales who's put forward uh, FOIs to all the gender clinics around the country to actually get the numbers on the children who are being um, serviced um, by these clinics. And the um, FOR is a Freedom of Record Act kind of thing, I'm guessing. Correct. Okay. Yeah, correct. So we uh, we know that there are hundreds, if not thousands, of children who have been put on the puberty blocker uh, cross-sex hormones path. Um, so, you know, it's only, as I've said before, a lot of this is very hush-hush. Uh, so we, we don't actually know. Wow. Um, in terms, yeah. So in term, we haven't had a case here yet where it's with, in relation to detransitioning, but I do know that there is one afoot um, okay. that is being planned for, for litigation for a child who's been transitioned. Um, and we've also got reports of males being placed in female prisons. That's the other big one. Um, so there's some examples of that. Um, we've also got reports of biological males going into women's domestic violence shelters, homeless shelters, um, locked psych wards. This one in particular was very egregious in that uh, this male claimed a female gender identity without, you know, he looked like a male, he was acting like a male, Um and when the staff were briefed on bringing this patient in, they were more concerned with the staff getting the pronouns right than the fact that this individual had a lengthy criminal record of violence against women. And that was not even disclosed to the staff until this person uh, was discharged from the locked psych unit. So he oh, was wow. put on a locked psych unit with very vulnerable mentally ill women and the staff were not aware of his history. Hmm. Yeah. Okay. And these things are yes. piling up. It sounds like they're kind of hush-hush. There's a social pressure, perhaps even legal pressure, not to speak out of, uh, against this? Um, correct. So we're, you know, down here in Australia, we're always a few years behind the rest of the world. Um, so in terms of the conversation, um, yeah, it has been uh, very hush-hush. And I just find that when I get involved in conversations with people, there is still this just e extraordinary dissonance as to what is happening when you sort of say, look what's already happened in the UK, say, in relation to prisons, and we still get the responses of, oh, that never happens, you know, that's never going to happen. And you're like, hmm. well, it has, and we need to start facing up to the fact that it is and there is an alternative viewpoint to allowing gender identity ideology to infiltrate all our, our policy here in mm -hmm. Australia. Mm -hmm. And recently there's been a conversion therapy legislation in Victoria. Is that correct? That's correct. So that's going through Parliament at the moment and it is likely that it, it will pass. Um, so the problem with this conversion therapy bill is that the way it's been presented in Parliament and in the media is actually not what the bill itself does. Um, so 
they're talking about uh, conversion therapy and they're talking about sexual orientation and they're talking about mm. uh, gender identity, but the definitions upon which it rests, like in relation to sexual orientation, is it's not same-sex attraction. It's a person... Um, it's if a person has an emotional attraction to or affiliation with a person of the same gender, a different gender, or another gender. So exactly, it's so or vague. Another as gender. Another gender. So it's so <laughs> Just like this vague. It's floating around. So that could mean anything, you know. Yeah. Um, and then you have the gender identity uh, definition, which is even more vague than the federal one that can be read down to mean a person's personal sense of their personal preferences, name, mannerisms, dress. So mm-hmm, mm-hmm. as you pointed out, again, it's just it's stereotypes. Um, and then when they talk about suppression practices, they say a suppression practice is a practice that is suppressive. So you're like, well, what does that mean? And then... <laughs> Are they allowed to do that? Like, just well, like... <laughs> it's not even a loophole. It's just a, a circular uh, reasoning. So it is. It's the infinite loophole. It's the Mobius oh, strip I, of circular yes. reasoning. I mean, I did uh, advanced statutory interpretation as part of my uh, law degree for this, for this purpose, to be able to oh, really understand legislation. And... In all the legislation that I've read over the last six years, um, it's just extraordinary. It's like it hasn't even been written by lawyers. Um, And they're saying, they keep repeating that, you know, this is because people, these people are not broken or in need of fixing, quote, unquote, in the legislation. And I'm like, that's just extraordinary language to use. Wait, they put that in the legislation. Oh, they they have put that in the legislation. That's activist. Language. Yes, isn't it? Yeah. So it's it's like it's been written by the activists. And, you know, they also talk about how the purpose is to denounce people. It says that the, the main purpose is to denounce and prohibit change or suppression practices. Wait, wait. The main purpose of this bill is to denounce people. <laughs> yes. Wow. This is written by some sort of like uh, gender studies major, uh, probably even just second year <laughs> gender studies major. At that. It, isn't it extraordinary? And I mean, wow. they talk about not broken and in need of fixing, but then they're incorporating, you know, uh, transitioning of children. And it's like, well, if the surgical and medical transitioning of people is protected by this legislation, how is it not that they're broken and in need of fixing? It's there's all this inherent contradiction in hmm. here. And we're handing this piece of legislation over to the court to try and, you know, a- apply this. And I think we're placing a really unfair burden on the judges to try and hmm. and make sense of this. Um, but what, you know, for instance, they're saying the yeah. object is to ensure that everyone feels welcome and valued in Victoria and are label- able to live authentically and with pride. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, mm. it reads like an ideologue's manifesto, but yeah. the most something that Sprite would put out during Pride Month. <laughs> and the most disturbing thing about this act, because um, I had a, a quick refresher look last night, is look, it applies to anybody. So anybody can make a complaint. Anybody uh, can be the object of a complaint, including corp- including organisations that can be incorporated or not. 
Um, and the organisations can be res are responsible for the actions of their employees, volunteers, agents, affiliates, pretty much anyone that's associated with your organisation. And when they say organisation, they don't just mean corporates or charities. It could mean anybody. So could it mean some of the women's groups that I'm involved with online? Um, it also applies to online activity. And they've given themselves scope to apply this legislation beyond the state of Victoria to pretty much anybody, including outside of Australia. So it's actually unconstitutional because a state-created tribunal does not have extraterritorial application, but they've empowered themselves to do this. Um, they've also empowered themselves. So this is operating under the executive branch. So it's not judicial. It's not legislative. So their offices are going to be drawn from executive. So um, however, they are allowed to um, impose civil penalties. So they can pretty much nominate whoever they want. Oh, sorry. So I'm just going to step back at a moment, but this legislation also creates a commission within the yeah. Victorian Equal. Yeah, so they've got this this special commission just for change or suppression practices. Um, so they can appoint whoever they want to run the commission. Anyone can make a complaint. Anyone can be the subject of a complaint. Then, what the commission can do is it. They say they're victim led and trauma informed, so they get to define what the crime is, they get to do conduct an investigation as they see fit, they get to determine the outcome and they get to determine the punishment and then they get to enforce compliance. And generally under the terms of the commission, this is to do with um, mostly fines. But if someone is not compliant with this, then they can escalate it to the courts. And that's when you start to get these criminal penalties. So you've got this investigation that's happened and it's, volu it's voluntary to participate. But if you don't participate, they'll conduct the investigation anyway and make the decision and then enforce the fines. Hmm. And if you refuse to go on with it, then it gets escalated to the, to the courts. And that's when you can go to jail for up to 10 years or have a fine of $200,000. If you're an organisation, you can be fined up to $1 million dollars um, if you're seen to be contravening the act or someone who's affiliated with your organisation contravenes the act. So it's extraordinary, Benjamin. It's yeah. like the star chamber <laughs> and no one is talking about it. But it's, it's all here. It's all written out. They are literally allowing themselves to be judge, jury and executioner. I've never seen anything like it. And I spoke to a family member of mine who's... Um, who's a, a brilliant lawyer and he has been in public service his entire life. He was uh, head of uh, basically one of the government departments for their uh, legal section um, for many years. And I explained all this to him and I said, in all, and he's, he's really into like legislative and political history of Australia. And I said to him, have you ever <laughs> seen anything like this? I said, am I actually going a bit crazy am I misreading this <laughs> he said no I've never seen anything like it so I'm often sitting there thinking you know is it just me that I've been involved in this discussion for too long um or, or is this really happening and no one's talking about it so what stage is this uh rather crazy uh piece of legislation <laughs> in right now like, is it, like, open for debate or is it already going through or...? It's, it's pretty much... It's just 
waiting to receive the final rubber stamp. So it's had the the second reading. Um, so it's just was there a period a, where people could give public comment on this? Oh no, no, this was all done by stealth, of course. Oh, so they oh yeah, they did a broad community consultation by invitation. Um, and when the Attorney General of Victoria was asked, you know, upon what basis was this legislation? Because obviously legislation is created for, in response to a problem. Um, however, she was only, my understanding is she was only able to give four examples of historical conversion practices. So I will absolutely sit here and say the conversion practices that when we th the ordinary person thinks of it's all those terrible things they did to gay and lesbian people in the past and I absolutely condemn that and that should not have happened you know I mean I have gay and lesbian people in my immediate family and um, in my social circle that we're very close to um, say for instance with my partner some of his best friends uh, are gay males and they're older and you know they went through the whole thing of trying to get married and some of them even have kids and and it was all it was awful you know it was a really hard time however it doesn't tend to happen in Australia these days like it just it just doesn't and the way that this legislation is written as if there's this systemic practice currently yeah. happening yeah um and the thing with this legislation is that it captures everybody so they do make reference to religious practices. You'll laugh at this one. And they talk about the religious practices, including deliverance practices and exorcisms. <laughs> which is just extraordinary. Um, so, <laughs> you know, I mean, they're, Pastor, they're referring I'm, to the I'm having some masculine feelings. Can you pray them away? <laughs> like, what is that? How is that happening? Uh, Sal Grover, yeah. I had her on. She talked about prayer being legislated. So so that's kind of included here. Like you can't pray yeah. about somebody uh, not uh, pray for your son to stop wearing dresses is grounds for yeah. being dragged in front of this kangaroo court or some sort of court. Yeah. Pray the gay away, as they yeah. say. Um, yeah, but so, it's yeah, not even homosexuality. Covered. It's just this uh, nebulous, self-referential gender, gender, gender thing, which means gender feelings, which is just this load of bollock uh, stereotypes, yeah. right? So it's not gay. Yeah. Homosexuality is I am attracted to this other kind of body. Gender identity, yeah. nobody can really define it. Define it. Yeah. Other than these yes. weird spectrums or gender persons uh yeah so like yeah that, so. It, absolutely because as i said the the ridiculous definitions related on gender and like further to gender identity gender gender is not defined anywhere in australian legislation so we have so oh. gender yeah it's not yes no but it's, <laughs> Just it's legislated but not defined gender identity is defined but not gender and then okay. the definition of gender identity is predicated on biological sex because it can be contrary to biological sex. But the activists yeah. here have also systematically been trying to remove the definition of woman and man from uh, legislation. So when they oh. did the 2013 amendments, they also removed the definitions of woman and man, um, the ordinary biological definitions. So just to confuse things further. Um, yeah. I've also read law reports here from... Uh, written by uh, like activist academics who have said that they intend to remove sex as a protected characteristic altogether. 
um, as much as yes. Wait, why would you remove protected characteristics? Because they want it to be gender identity. Okay, and and that can't countenance the reality of sex, so it has to scour biological reality out of its domain in order to have prominence. I, I'm just supposing. Uh, correct. Yeah. Correct. Um, yeah, it's when they, um, you know, when they're looking at the protected characteristics and there's this push. Uh, so I've been through a lot of the parliamentary submissions uh, when they make these changes to the legislation, and that's from all the people who have an interest in. So it can be activist groups, individuals, and so on. And so with the activists from this side, there's this great push to make the gender to make the characteristics remove sex and say sex characteristics and gender identity and just remove sex as a discrete category so sex characteristics so what do you do you break it down into the 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 parts you know yeah. breasts yeah. and genitals yeah. and so then what does that mean further to that you go oh well i'm a male who's had breast implants and uh, so it's just trying to completely deconstruct the concept of sex and remove it entirely, which, as we all know, has e enormous implications for, for females. Um, but there's evidence all over the place. You know, I mean, I say that they're doing it by stealth, but if you care to look, which obviously most people, you know, aren't that interested in reading parliamentary papers and submissions and so on, but if you go looking, it's all there. Yeah. Yeah. Um, mm. So, I mean, but further to this conversion practice with trying to incorporate everybody, I mean, they do address the religious uh, sector. So we have been getting some pushback from uh, the more right-wing conservative um, people. They've written a few articles. Um, but it also catches, it captures uh, healthcare providers. So... Uh, I understand you uh, had a conversation with uh, Stephanie Davis Arise, so she recently, which was uh, fantastic. Um, so obviously she went through all the problems with medicalization, medicalizing children. But here with this uh, legislation, it will prevent healthcare providers from offering any therapeutic pathway aside from that of affirmation. Hmm. How, so, how do you know that specifically? How, how do you know that they will that that denies that? Oh, it says if you do not affirm or support a person with a gender identity, then you are guilty of contravening the legislation. Which includes if it, you question their identity, if you have them question their own identity or explain why they have these feelings, any sort, mm -hmm. anything other than yes is yeah. barred. Then. Well, okay. then affirmation or support. So, yeah. Okay. So, again, that captures parents who might, so the parents who lost their daughter, saying to your child who's experiencing all those things that we know, bullying or bereavement or, uh, you know, homophobia, bully, homophobic bullying and so on, who might be wanting to transition for reasons other than having, you know, distress about their natal sex. Mm -hmm. and you're a parent who does that, your child uh, could then report you <laughs> to the commission um, and they've also incorporated into this legislation the Family Violence Act. So you could have a charge of domestic violence brought against you for failing to affirm your child or if you were to apply it to, say, women whose husbands transition um, later in life, if you're not there cheering on your husband, you're failing to affirm and support him, he could bring a charge of domestic violence against you. Effectively, you when you could 
really get out of a uh, sticky divorce settlement by just claiming uh, that you weren't supported in this. And then you just, you don't have to give half your earnings or whatever. I mean, you could really game this. A divorce oh, attorney, absolutely. I'm saying, could really go absolutely. full bore. Wow. So I know it sounds ludicrous and ridiculous, but I've read this down to its sort of logical or illogical conclusion, and that's effectively how it could be applied. You know, and you could sit here and say, well, it's unlikely that that would happen. But we know, say with Jessica Yaniv in Canada or um, Stephanie Hayden in the UK, that there are males with a trans identity who are willing to push this legislation to the extreme. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So why, you know, it's sort of like, well, if they do it, why wouldn't it happen here? If that's available to them, there is a risk that that could happen. Or you you talk about a troubled teen who sees that they can completely demolish their parents or enact vengeance on their family uh, by yes. through this means. Uh, and there's no controls. There's no control here. It's really open to interpretation. And it, that interpretation only goes one way, which empowers the person who claims this identity, which is then not accepted by other people, even if it's, and, and it could be not even a gender identity that has anything to do with male or female. You could identify as a dog or a horse. You could take it in that direction. There's ample room for you to move out of the realm of anything having to do remotely with sex stereotypes with that other gender thing. I'm just saying the the ad absurdums are just right (laughs) all around this Swiss cheese of uh, logical construction. Absolutely. It's so vague as to be meaningless. So, you know, how do you, how would you even begin to interpret it? Um, And yes, I think there is a real risk here that it can be, you know, weaponized for improper purposes. Mm. yeah, so there. That's it's it's deeply concerning, and I mean, I speak out, and I think to myself, well, technically, under what's happening here, if this is enacted, someone could make a complaint against me. Yeah. So, um, it's extraordinary, um, and we've had other states here in Australia that have put through. Uh, say in Queensland, they put through uh, sim- legislation for suppression practices, but it didn't go this far. It didn't set up this whole Star Chamber Commission. Um, hmm. It was mostly to do with uh, healthcare providers. However, when they were arguing it in Parliament, they were also talking about how there are suppression and change practices within um, like religious communities. However, when they drafted the legislation in Queensland, they didn't incorporate that. It's only with the healthcare providers. Um, and I would like to note that, again, they did that by stealth. They did it at a very bad time of year. They did an, an inquiry for a few weeks over January, I understand. Um, however, the Queensland Law Society, I think, and the Australian Medical Association understood that this was happening and they actually presented to Parliament and said, look, this is really poorly drafted. Um, this is really concerning. You're also inhibiting uh, healthcare providers' ability to provide a number of different pathways to a person who shows up with gender identity issues. Um, but Parliament decided to disregard all of that and go oh. ahead with it anyway. Oh, okay. Yes. Oh, wow. Yeah. Is there any sort of pushback on that level within Victoria? 
Um, so when with Victoria, with what's happening now, there's been um, there's an MP by the name of Louise Staley, so uh, a woman who I believe represents a, a regional community, and she gave an outstanding speech in Parliament speaking out against it, um, which is available on YouTube. Um, and so what's her name there again? was Louise Staley, so S T A L E Y. Um, but most of the te- most of the uh, speeches when they did debate it in Parliament were uh, affirmative, wanting to affirm the legislation. Okay. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, they also pushed through legislation in the Australian Capital Territory where Canberra is. Um, so the main takeaway of that I found was to do with children being able to change their sex on their birth certificate without their parents' knowledge or consent from the age of 12. They just had to apply to the tribunal. Um, And children under the age of 12 can change their sex on their birth certificate with only the consent of one parent. So if you go to change your child's name on the birth certificate, you need the consent of two parents, but you're allowed to change your child's sex without the other parent's consent. So... That was interesting and that one, again, was pushed through really quietly, uh, clearly been written by activists. There's a lot of the same language in, the, in, these, in these acts yeah. um, and presented, I think it was like at the end of the parliament, parliamentary term and just pushed through hmm. quietly without much consideration or analysis or criticism or debate. Yeah. So... This is going to have a second reading or it's already done the second reading? It just needs to be rubber stamped? Basically just needs to be, uh, yeah. So it's, I think it's gone back to the lower house and they just need to approve it, which it's it's pretty much a done deal. So, yeah, so once in it's in law, it's very difficult to get out and it's going to be in law. Is that It will be correct? in law. That is correct. Um, I mean, it's not... It's legislation. It can always be repealed, but once okay. it's there, it is it is difficult. Yeah. And under what circumstances do you see it being challenged, or do you do you see that uh, <laughs> like ten years down the road, enough uh, of these problems get cropped up that can't be ignored? Uh, is that how it's going to happen? Or, uh, yeah. I, I mean, obviously there are going to be problems. Um, you know, again with what might go through this commission is that the commission has the right to either keep it confidential or release their findings. So there's also a provision in here that they can release the findings to whoever they want. So if you're dragged into an inquiry here, it, there's no guarantee of confidentiality. So you Wait, might so have an you can violate your privacy rights, your religious rights, uh, your right to yep. a fair open trial, your right to, a, I guess, a lawyer. Yep. <laughs> it, it completely yep. strips uh, people of their basic yeah. rights as citizens. They don't talk about, yeah, they're silent on legal representation, actually. Um, hmm. uh, however, they can report you to the police. Uh, they've also given themselves special status to be friend of the court for any matters that go through the court system. It's extraordinary. <laughs> <laughs> wow. This is a this yeah. is a complete coup. This is a complete gender coup. There's so many things wrong with this from a constitutional point of view that it wow. just makes my jaw hit the floor. So I think 
if there are going to be starting to be complaints, and obviously this is violate, oh, I think there's even a provision in here, you'll like this, that they have to adhere to the uh, principles of natural justice unless the legislation allows it not to. So underpinning our entire legal system in your country, my country, all the, all the common law countries are the principles of natural justice that, you know, came through that are enshrined in all the human rights treaties, with the UN post World War Two, uh, so all those principles. What are those? Of, what, what's the basic uh, natural justice? Just could you define it for the audience? Me too. So with natural justice, so it's it's the human rights that we all understand. So it's the right not to be killed, the right not to be harmed, wrongful detention, the right freedom of association, freedom of thought, belief, conscience those types of ideas um, and they came about post-World War II after all the atrocities mm. and mass casualties and all that kind of thing. So that's what the UN sought to um, enshrine and we acknowledge that it is those principles of natural justice that, um, that are the foundation of our legal system. And our laws are supposed, here in Australia, our laws are supposed to be inter interpreted bearing those principles of natural justice in mind. That's how it works. However, this piece of legislation has given itself permission not to follow the principles of natural justice if the legislation well, it, says it doesn't have to. It, it says that in the, in the bill, that it, it has the right to suspend any yeah. legal principle whatsoever uh, if well, they violate the, these principles. I get you could interpret it that way. So the principles of, of natural justice, yes. So your freedom of association, of belief, conscience, thought, all of that. It's remarkable. <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm sorry. This is, it's hilarious. Yes. I, it, it's ridiculous. Yeah. It's absurd. Yes. It's, and it, uh, so it needs to be, it's going to need to be challenged. So whether that's because we start having really, sort of grotesque outcomes where people yeah. are just being denounced and vilified and their reputation's yeah. ruined. So there are going to be people who will be paying, paying a price for this. Um, there's no doubt who will be losing their livelihoods yeah. and so on. And um, their families. Publicly vilified, yeah. absolutely. Um, and their bodies well, with regards to the children. And exactly. And the children who are ostensibly being protected, um, you know, so I sort of think, like, how's all this going to play out in terms of medical malpractice and mm -hmm. around consent and capacity, you know, further to the Kira Bell decision? Um, but there are going to be these extraordinary outcomes. So it's like whether we have a test case of someone who's going to be brave enough to take this all the way to the high court in Australia and whether we're going to be able to because you do have to apply for leave to appeal through all the um, through all the steps, um, mm -hmm. or whether our judiciary has been so captured that they will just kibosh it and we won't be allowed to, or whether we uh, have a judicial review um, and say that we think that there's uh, inherent conflict with the constitution and the principles of natural justice, this needs to be reviewed at a high level. Um, so that's something I'd like to investigate. So. Um, but again, like with Kira Bell, it ha we have to have some really smart lawyers on board and we need funding mm. uh, mm -hmm. and we need leave to do so. Um, what do you mean you need leave? You, you have to have permission to be able to yep. challenge this. Permission from who? Yeah. Oh, the court. The designers? So, 
<laughs> well, say it was to go to the High Court, you have to um, apply for, because the High Court of Australia, I think similarly to the Supreme Court in the United States, is a court of appeal, essentially. So mm. you get up there because there's been errors of law in a particular case. Um, so, yeah, we would have to have someone brave enough to, to take it all the way and we would have to be fortunate enough to be granted leave to appeal. Um, yeah. And it seems like this is written in such a way that they have the power to to stop any lower level cases from getting uh, more and more. Uh, they can stop yeah. things from getting up the level. It, it seems like they have granted well, themselves. Did, yeah. And I mean, we've had decisions go through the High Court of Australia in relation to the transitioning of children, say. I mean, I've been through um, the legal databases here in Australia looking for any decisions in relation to the Gender Identity and Sex Discrimination Act, and nothing's really made it all the way to the High Court. Um, so everything's still very unsettled. The only things that have made it all the way to, like, the Federal Court and the High Court are decisions to do with the medicalisation of children. So here in Australia, with decision, I think it was re-Kelvin in 2017, there we don't require court permission for a child to go on to stage one. That was decided in 2013, I think. And we now don't require permission from the court for children to go on to cross-sex hormones. Now the activists are trying to get to stage three, which is surgical transitioning children. Um, so the High Court has made these decisions, but these are not precedent because the evidence is unchallenged. So these decisions were made on a base on evidence that only went to one side of the story. So I only went in favour of surgical of the affirmation and transitioning of children. There was no wow. evidence presented to the contrary. So whereas with Kira Bell, um, say that was a judicial uh, that was um, a judicial review. So it wasn't like a, a tort case where Kira Bell was trying to seek damages for what was done to her. She wanted a decision on children being able to give consent to such treatments. Um, and that has set a precedent, precedent because evidence was presented from both sides. Mm -hmm. It was mm -hmm. tested. Both sides got to argue, um, got to argue their position. Whereas here in Australia, those decisions, there was only one side of the argument that was allowed to present evidence. That was allowed. Why That's was the other correct. party not allowed? Do you know? Oh, they just they dismissed it. Oh. Yeah. Okay. Mm -hmm. So there were some parties that tried. Um, there was also a recent case uh, of re-imaging where they tried to get evidence in. This was a, a young male who had his father wanted to transition him. His mother did not. Um, the father won. The child is now being transitioned. Um, and there were parties that sought to introduce evidence to say there's also another side to this story and affirmation is not necessarily uh, of therapeutic benefit, um, but my understanding is that wasn't allowed. So wow. I know it's extraordinary. So, um, so yeah, I mean, <laughs> but at least it's not. So until again, we maybe have another case with Kira Bell um, going all the way to the high court um, that still remains unsettled. But as it stands a at the moment, like it's a case like Kira Bell in Australia. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So, yeah. I mean, obviously, we can. Kira Bell does have it doesn't have standing within our system, but we do refer to decisions made in other jurisdictions. So, okay. um, yeah. But we don't have to. Um, 
that's why Kiribati is going to be so powerful. But when the decisions mm. were made here, it was more on the basis of whether uh, the affirmation, the medical affirmation of the child was therapeutic. And our high court decided that the therapeutic benefits of cross-sex hormones outweighed the risks and consequences of the irreversible treatment. Hmm. So on that basis, so that but they and were they labouring. And they reviewed uh, one side, uh, one yes. side's evidence. Okay. So there was no. Uh, so they didn't present the side where there are these detransitioners um, yeah. and desisters, and also the therapeutic benefits long term, and also the fact that. As we know, there's just this complete absence of evidence and data yeah. and follow-up. So they've yeah. made a decision based on, uh, you know, evidence that was ideologically informed and not actually based on on robust scientific data. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so extraordinary the, problems with it. <laughs> yeah, the, there's, again, I said this in my uh, interview with uh, Stephanie, there's, you know, the, the actual uh, transgender topic, you know, then there's the trans kids topic, which is different than, you know, uh, trans rights, you know, then there's the medical medicalization of children. But what you're talking about with this, uh, this one bill that's going to set up this committee that's going to review all this information and prosecute everybody on, on its whim and appoints itself and has the ability to deny the founding, the underpinning of, of law, uh, th yes. this is going way beyond... Uh, even trans women are women. It's going way beyond trans rights or human rights. This is an assault on the entire mm -hmm. legal apparatus and can be completely used to erode that, to, to turn the state into an enforcement wing of an activist class, it seems like. Yes. And maybe I'm going overboard, but that's what no. you're kind of presenting to me. No, I, th I, think, you're, I think you're absolutely right. And like it, it terrifies me. I remember the night that I I read it, and I was I was shaking. I hmm. and I I went and spoke to people that, you know, understand legislation. I said, "Am I wrong in thinking this? Because this is just extraordinary. How is this even happening? And it's just getting through with, with no broad spread criticism. Like when I was listening to the MPs talk in the Victorian Parliament." it sounded like they hadn't even read the legislation. Mm. And what that AG was presenting when she, and also in the explanatory memorandum, which is also always released with legislation, so it, it explains the legislation. There's all these fallacies and erroneous statements and they're explaining the legislation in a way that is actually contrary to what the legislation says. Mm -hmm. It's just mind-blowing and... I can't believe it's, I actually can't believe it's happening. You know, as a legally trained person, this really, I find it deeply concerning. Um, and it can be weaponized against, as I said, against anybody, including people outside of Australia, ostensibly. Uh, mm -hmm. I mean, and whether, you know, this happens and it does make its way through the courts and it does get struck down, um, what happens to the people who are dragged through this process in the meantime? And what happens to their lives? Um, and it has a chilling effect on debate because people suddenly don't want to go out in public and talk about it. You know, I mean, I've talked to my partner about this and when the Save Women's Sports came into the, and I said, I really want to sign up to do this. Um, and he said, uh, well, it's lucky we've got insurance on the house in case they burn the house down. 
And I'm like, yeah, you're right. Or, you know, have I, have I made myself unemployable um, by, by saying things when I'm, I'm not, I don't think I'm saying anything hateful. I'm just criticising the legislation and the policy that is there. But, you know, I've had people, you know, people close to me warn me and say, are you aware of, you know, these dangerous statements? And I'm like, all I'm doing is saying that what's happening is outside of normal parliamentary process and, and democracy democratic process and and where's the media and why is no one talking about this and um i just find it extraordinary that it's it's just capturing everything and i know we've touched on a lot of different issues here but it's so complicated as you know i mean you've done hundreds of uh, podcasts it's so multifaceted and you know unfortunately with a lot of this i think it it comes back to the banality of, you know, the follow the money conversation, you know, who's pushing this for what end. And Jennifer Bilek has done some excellent investigative work into sort of who's funding all of this. And, you know, we know that there are these big players in the United States who have a lot of money who are investing into all these LGBT groups at grassroots level who are then accepting the funding so they can push this ideology. And that's why we're getting all these secret policy changes um and it's sort of like to what end and and why are we not considering you know the the children who are being harmed the women's rights that are being destroyed is that just all collateral damage you know in the search for for profits for the pharmaceutical companies or i don't i don't know or these people who want to control um you know, have this legislation where you're able to completely control the narrative in relation to gender identity. Mm-hmm. It's just, it's so, the more you look into it, the more broad, you've, you see the broad impact that it's having on so many aspects of life. Yeah. Um, yeah. We get, we get, cut off, we get caught up in, uh, it goes so deep that <laughs> you get to a place where like, okay, this is conspiracy th- territory uh, now, yeah. but you see across the West, this huge push over the last 10 years, well-funded in everywhere. The uh, United States, I don't think we're at where you guys are, but your, your government is completely ceding its powers over to this group. And it's way yeah. beyond pronouns in your bio. Like what yeah. this is doing is rewriting law uh, yes. in order to empower a, a class of people who don't even have to define what they're doing or why they're doing it. They have complete control over language, over law, and then over the execution of of, of their will on on people. And it just it goes way yes. beyond the issue of uh, you know changing your dress or you know wanting to change your uh, your name or you know be accepted yeah. for your authentic self. It's not about that on this level with what you're talking about. It's something much more insidious. That's that's hiding behind yeah. all that stuff. Because yeah, I mean, it uses that as a as a vehicle to hide what it's actually doing. Because you sort of think, okay, pronouns, you know, whatever you want to wear, whatever you want to wear. Yeah, that's fine. That's all nice. Let's all be kind about it. But it's sort of, you know, paving the way for this, these changes, these fundamental changes to you know, the structures that underpin our society, like trying to remove sex as a, as a concept, as a protected characteristic, you know, rewriting, you know, taking the word woman away from women and rebranding us as, 
you know, gestational carriers and, um, you know, people with a cervix. And, I mean, there's just so many elements to this. And sometimes when you're sitting there and you look at the big picture, it's just, as I'm sure all of us in this uh, it, who are invested in this debate do from time to time and you just it's overwhelming yeah yeah yeah, yeah. And so you think, what, what, what concrete you steps are you uh, are you planning on taking or what's the next step for you or or how do you think that people can get together and, and do something productive and proactive well, I think in, a, in Australia, we need to just be raising awareness. Um, for the ordinary people out there, you know, it does make a difference if you post online. It does make a difference to write to your MP, to write to your newspapers, um, to get involved in the debate online. It might seem like a little thing, but it shows that there are people who are criticising. Um, so in relation to the sports, like me personally, I'm doing uh, lobbying of politicians and just trying to, you know, a lot of them aren't even aware that this is happening. Um, and when I explain to them what the guidelines mean for women and the inclusion of males in the women's sports, th they didn't understand that that's what it all meant. Um, hmm. So we're still at the raising awareness point, I think. Um, but I would just greatly encourage people to, you know, I hate to say educate yourself, but just get out there and, and read widely. And oftentimes, you know, I will go and, and look at a podcast produced by the other side or articles written by the other side just to see what they're they're up to. You know, people need to make up their own mind. Um, but, yeah, I think... I think that's really important. And just supporting our groups online, you know, Save Women's Sports Australia, support us online. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah, so that's, uh, you know, the people who are speaking out. So Dr Holly Lawford-Smith, she's got a new book coming out, like Gender Critical Feminism. Um, so, yeah, supporting the people who are willing to put their heads above the parapet. Above the parapet. Yes. Which is yeah. not to be confused oh, with a disease. Sorry, I have an interlopement. Sorry, sweetie. Daisy, put me in the name. Okay, thank you. On the television. Oh, yeah, that's the other reason I'm in this fight. I've got three three young daughters, you know, so I kind mm -hmm. of, I, uh, I don't, um, I don't have a choice, you know, um, mm -hmm. in terms of fighting for them. So I'm sorry. What, so we, I can't what, what are you doing then um, right now, other than uh, contacting weird uh, podcasters? Uh, <laughs> you're involved in uh, Save Women's Sports, and um, yeah. are you writing articles, writing briefs? Uh, part yeah. Of so, organization? so, yeah. So, writing articles, we've had a few things published. Um, I, with Holly Lawford Smith, I've co-authored with her. She's um she's a wonderful writer. We've had some things published. Um, as I said, I only just finished my law degree um halfway hmm. through December, so that was well. Congrats. I, yes, <laughs> so that was a huge relief. So I'll be admitted uh, hopefully early in the new year as a solicitor. And look, my intention we have to be on a limited practicing certificate to start. So I would like to get some experience um in litigation um. And obviously, like, this is my, my very great interest um, in fighting against this gender identity ideology. So eventually I, I would like to be involved in some of these cases where we do try mm. to test this through the court system here in Australia. Mm. That's my long, that's my long game. Yeah. <laughs> Australia is going to be a very interesting um, 
I guess, test case, uh, and sorry to abstract it to that level, but the UK has been talking about this stuff for years. The United States has been kind of uh, battling this out socially, at least. It seems like Australia wasn't really engaged publicly on this debate, Mm -hmm. and it just kind of came in, and now it's in law, and you guys are going to have to wake up (laughs) and then kind of figure out what's going on and kind of watch the outcomes as they happen. Yeah, absolutely. We're we're playing catch-ups basically. And it seems like every time we turn around, there's been another policy or another guidelines release that's been done. And we're Mm -hmm. like, oh my God, what's happened now? Um, And trying to play catch ups. And, you know, if, if the, if the pamphlets are already printed and it's, and it's already up on the website, it's incredibly hard to, to get them to retract it. So yeah, we're really up against it. Yeah. Down yeah. Here. yeah. <laughs> so, where, where do you think? Uh, what's a good portal for Australians and people around the world to go to to learn about what's going on uh, in your wheelhouse? So there's a number of groups, as I mentioned, uh, Save Women's Sports Australasia. There are also state-based groups. So there's Women Speak Tasmania, there's Fair Go for Queensland Women, Women's Guild, uh, New South Wales. Another really fantastic group is uh, the Women's Human Rights Campaign, which is global and that's come out of London. um, And that is trying to enshrine the, just revisit the articles of CEDAW um, and get our governments to... Is that an acronym? A- What's CEDAW? Oh, so sorry. That's the United Nations Convention for the Elimination of Discrimination Against Women. Okay. Okay. Um, so that's basically the Women's Human Rights uh, Treaty. That has been signed by pretty much everybody except the United States and countries like Saudi Arabia. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, but the, the UK, New Zealand, Australia, Canada, we've all signed it. Um so that's also a good place to go and have a look. Um, yeah, so, I mean, there's some really good places to start, uh, say, on Facebook. And from there, uh, because the women there regularly post articles, they're interconnected with other groups um, over in New Zealand as well. And then from there you can sort of see the landscape. Mm. Yeah. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, use um, your free speech while you still can. Yeah, there's also a coalition called the Coalition of Biological Reality that's really good um, at, at letter writing. So, they, um, so yeah, I can't stress enough how important it is to just communicate uh, with your MPs and your local papers. Yeah. yeah. Coalition of Biological Reality. Who would have thought we would have needed one of those? <laughs> oh, I know. It's just, it's extraordinary. Yeah. Um, I, I, yeah, so, I mean, look, and we're trying to approach politicians. Um, we have some politicians who brought forward some legislation um, mm. in Australia to counteract this, but unfortunately they're often very divisive, quite conservative, controversial figures. Um, oh, yeah, yeah. So yeah. what they say is immediately dismissed. When when mm-hmm. you actually read the legislation they've put forward, it's quite, it's like, mm. oh, this makes a lot of sense, but because you're so divisive, people just ignore yeah. you. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. The, the people who, uh, yeah, it's really interesting that this one topic also reshapes the political landscape by uh, forcing people to make alliances that they would have never dreamed in a million years they would be making uh, across aisles and stuff like that. Uh, I agree. I mean, I've been accused of being a right wing bigot and I'm like, well, I'm oh, welcome I, to I the voted. club. You're doing <laughs> like, something right if they're calling you that. 
But I'm like, I voted for every single political party there is in Australia at one time or another. I'm politically homeless. I do not mm. have a religion. I think this transcends, you know, bipartisanship, mm. race, religion. It really does. And mm. we need to move on from that left-right dichotomy in this argument. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. What's, uh, what's up next for you? Uh, uh, other than so just me- uh, enjoying your lawyerhood or whatever you call um, it. Well, trying to get my head around not studying is amazing. Um, and I do have, <laughs> I have three small children who've been very yeah. patient waiting while mummy has been studying. Um, yeah. I'm in a region of Sydney that's currently in hard lockdown. We're not allowed oh, okay. to leave. Yeah. Uh, uh, so just and enjoying. it's midsummer some- for you right now too. So you can enjoy that beach yeah. that you guys have. Oh, they were they released the restrictions. We're allowed to go uh, down to the the beach and the parks and picnics if it's for our mental health. So taking three oh. children out of the house to the beach, yes, that's my mental health. <laughs> um, but yeah, so next steps for me is to to get back into uh, like full time paid work after mm-hmm. after all these mm-hmm. years of studying. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And working well, on this advocacy at, at yeah. midnight when my kids are in bed, like so many women do. Yeah, um, you. Yeah. So, it sounds like you have your plate full, but you are up to the task. Uh, I, I hope so. <laughs> yeah. I hope so. Yeah. Well, thank you for reaching out and setting up this, uh, having me have you on my channel. It's been really informative. Um, and I hope I'll post this up. Hopefully it raises more awareness for uh, what's going on in Australia. The story that you told is really unbelievable. This legislation is beyond the pale. <laughs> insane. <laughs> it is. So. It is. I mean, I urge anyone to look at it. It's freely available. Have a look yourself, you know. Um I, I wish I was making it up, but I'm not. So, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, thanks for well, your thank, time. Thank you, Benjamin. It was really nice to talk to you. Thank you for giving me this opportunity to try and raise awareness of, of what's going on down here. Uh, uh, I'll yeah. cut it there. Um, congratulations for reaching the end of the discussion. If you enjoyed it, do be sure to leave a review or a comment or a thumbs up or whatever you need to do to show that glorious algorithm that this is some good stuff. And do be sure to go and check that back catalog as it is brimming full of fantastic conversations. Links to provide monetary support are down there in the description as well. Have a good night.